Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here's a poem from Robert Frost called My November Guest. My sorrow, when she's here with me, thinks these dark days of autumn rain are beautiful as days can be. She loves the bear, the withered tree. She walks the sodden pasture lane. Her pleasure will not let me stay. She talks and I am fain to list. She's glad the birds have gone away, are gone away. She's glad her simple worsted gray is silver now with clinging mist. The desolate, deserted trees, the faded earth, the heavy sky, the beauties she so truly sees. She thinks I have no eye for these and vexes me for reason why. Not yesterday I learned to know the love of bare November days before the coming of the snow. But it were vain to tell her so, and they are better for her praise. My sorrow, when she's here with me, thinks these dark days of autumn rain are as beautiful as days can be. Autumn can be a time of death, a time of grief. The dark night encroaches ever earlier on our afternoons. The flowers wither on the vine. The paths down at Lincoln Marsh are a, a red, orange, and brown graveyard of those leaves that once kept the sun's heat at bay. We've just passed through the minor triduum of all hollow tide with its emphasis on those who've gone before us and yet who are no longer with us. And the sorrow of which Frost here speaks can permeate our descent into the winter cold. And so our minds in this season can turn towards the end, the end of the liturgical year in a couple weeks, the end of the fall semester, the end of the civil year, and then even the end of life. For the poet, his grief is an awkward companion who delights in that which brings low. For the apostle in our lectionary this morning, the grief the Christian feels at the falling asleep of those whom we love is actually to be inflected with an air of hope. For, as Paul puts it, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In the Christian turn towards the end, we're reminded that end has a double meaning. It can mean both finality, closing, cessation, but it can also mean target or goal or purpose. Paul's reflections here on the return of Christ and, and our Lord's parable of the wedding attendants show us that the end of our lives is not some distant otherworldly escape, but our end is intertwined in our present in our present love of bare November days. We come first to St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and in the early part of this chapter, chapter 4, Paul offers some clear ethical instructions on how Christians are to live lives that are pleasing to God, even to the completion of one's earthly sojourn. And this, then, is the impetus for his comments, which we pick up in verse 13. I think we, at least I sometimes, have a kind of uneasy relationship with thinking about Christ's second coming. 
I don't know about you, but I was raised on a fair amount of graphs and charts and chick tracks and that sort of thing. That's led me to develop a healthy fear of being left behind, a theology I now find rather suspect. However, 1 Thessalonians 4, and indeed all of Scripture, demands that we think about the return of Christ, and indeed even a rapture. Here's an Anglican commentator, W.H. Griffiths Thomas. He writes, The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a mere doctrine to be discussed, nor a matter for intellectual study alone. Its prominence in the New Testament shows the great importance of the truth, for it's referred to over 300 times, and it may almost be said that no other doctrine is mentioned so frequently or emphasized so strongly. And for Paul, in verses 13 and 18, Christ's return is the basis for the Christian's solace in the face of sorrow. But what then is the picture of the rapture described in these verses? Is our consolation to our grief based on the promise to flee our earthly dwelling, to escape this present life? to be caught up into the clouds where we're issued our, our harps on our wings? I think not. Rather, the end of the Christian life is not suddenly to vanish before the eyes of those who've been left behind, but rather to join with Christ the King in his glorious and earthly reign. So let's catch the picture here that Paul paints. Uh, it's a rather fantastic picture even. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The, uh, the ethereal path that Jesus used to depart the earth at his ascension seems to be a two-way street. Lo, he comes in clouds descending. Verse 16 goes on, And the dead in Christ will rise first. In verse 17, Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, we have to, I think, envision with our mind's eye a bit of the astronomy of these movements here. Paul makes a distinction between heaven and what we have translated here as the air. Ancient cosmology had it such that there were layers or, or levels to the heavenly realm. Uh, for instance, Solomon, when he's um, building the temple, he prays to God and says, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So there's an upper or an outer layer of the highest heaven that is the domain of God alone. And then there's a lower heaven, the air, as Paul puts it, which was the domain of those souls awaiting resurrection. Christ descends from heaven, meets those dead in Christ in the air, and then those who are alive on earth will be caught up together with them in that lower heaven. But here's the thing, rather than Christ stopping his descent and making a U-turn and, and escaping with his faithful followers, it's, it's those who are alive in Christ who make the U-turn and then join with Christ in returning to earth. Recall again that hymn, Lo, he comes in clouds descending, once for help, helpless sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. The, the saints swell the triumph of his train. Can you see that vision? The train is the company of saints who fall in line behind the one who descends from the clouds to return to earth. This is a, a festal celestial procession uh, ushering in the reign of Christ. It's a royal procession. Here again, these lines from our sequencing, we just sang, The king shall come when morning dawns and light and beauty brings. Hail, Christ the Lord, thy people pray. Come quickly, king of kings. So the vision here is not of Christ snatching us away from the earth literally like a thief in the night, though it may be sudden and unexpected like that. 
Rather, the vision is of a, a royal dignitary, the king of the universe, returning to his territory, accompanied by all those in his royal court. That's us, and that's all those saints we just commemorated in All Hallowtide. Those who happen to be on earth at that moment of the king's return will go out to meet him, to escort him back to his earthly dominion. Here's Griffith Thomas again. The coming is the climax and culmination of his work of redemption. When the body of Christ, the church, will be completed, and the Lord will usher in that kingdom, which will eventually result in God being all in all. The end of the Christian life is not an escape from earth, but joining with Christ in his earthly reign. So Paul, in verse 15 here, says that he, this picture he is elucidating about Christ's return is one he declares as a word from the Lord. That is, he sees his teaching as being directly from what Jesus himself had taught. And I think we can turn to our Matthew reading, Matthew 25, to see that this parable that Jesus describes uh, uh, puts forth the same movements that we've seen in 1 Thessalonians 4. So the picture painted here is of, is of wedding festivities. Uh, in this first century Jewish context, a wedding could be an all-day-long situation, all-day-long affair. A full day could be devoted to dancing and to partying. And then towards the end of the day, the, the bride would go back to her family's house with her bridesmaids to wait for the groom to finish partying and to pick her up and take her to his father's house for a wedding feast. When that time came, the bridesmaids, the attendants to the bride, they were supposed to go out to meet the groom in order to escort him to the bride, where then they would all lead the procession back to, out to the feast. And see, it's the same structure in the movements as we just described in Christ's return. The bridesmaids were to go out from they were, only to return with the groom. They go out to meet the groom in order to bring him back. And Christ, by analogy here, is the groom, and the church is the bride, and we all are to be his attendants. Only in the story, Jesus tells, half the bridesmaids are foolish and unprepared, while half are wise and prepared for the groom to come at a moment's notice. The ones who weren't ready, they were left out of the feast. And the ones who were ready got to enjoy the revelry of that wedding feast. And so Jesus comes to the moral of the story in, in verse 13. Be ready, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So both 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 25 describe the return of Christ. And in both these scenes, we're invited to imagine ourselves in these narratives. We're to imagine ourselves not joining Christ to flee the earth, but, but joining Christ to usher and escort him on his return. And Paul says this ought to be an encouragement to us. That we know that we do not grieve as those without hope, but that our sorrow is modulated always with the promise of resurrection, the promise of return. And Jesus warns us to watch and be ready for this return. So how might we do so? Well, I think our, our collect, our prayer for the day, gives us some clues regarding the end of the Christian life. Again, end as goal. Here again what we prayed, O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom. So the end, the target of the Christian life, is to be made like him, like Christ. But how then is Christ now? 
Well, not some disembodied ethereal spirit floating on a cloud. Christ has been resurrected with a fleshly, physical, touchable, pure human body. And our hope is one of resurrection, not disembodiment. An eternal and glorious kingdom on earth, not up in the clouds. And so I suggest that one way to heed this warning of our Lord to get ready for the day of, or the hour of Christ's return is actually to get used, get used to our earthly existence. This is our place. This is our home. We aren't ultimately fleeing it, but rather we are returning with Christ to dwell where we presently are. To get used to our earthly existence, I think, is to value our surroundings. We can value our chronological surroundings by not getting caught up in thinking too much about the past or the future, but rather being attentive to the present. I think we can value our physical surroundings by attending to and working with the land, the sea, the lakes, the trees, and all that's ever around us. We can value our relational surroundings by seeing those humans that we encounter here not as fleeting spirits on their way out of here, but as eternal beings whose embodied humanity will endure once they're resurrected with us on that last great day. Can, can we then gratefully receive each component of our present surroundings, each component of our earthly existence, each present moment as a gracious gift from our creator? That end is open to us even now. Even in our Eucharist, we take a present moment to receive with thanksgiving the gifts of God, the fruit of the earth and the work of human hands that becomes for us the bread of life. When we participate in this, as St. Paul says elsewhere, we proclaim Christ's death until his coming again. Today might be rather bright and sunny, but on the horizon, or the 10-day forecast, are indeed these dark days of autumn rain. Sorrow and grief permeate our present earthly sojourn, but for the Christian, we do not grieve as those without hope. The dawn of morning is ever on the horizon. The light that breaks is ever behind the clouds. The promise of spring is in the autumn mist. My family recently got some crocus bulbs and my wife and daughter planted them in our yard. I think that's an immensely hopeful act. These bulbs have been placed in the ground and they're now covered with dead leaves. That ground will soon freeze and a, a funeral pall of snow may one day cover them. But the promise of spring rests in those bulbs. That promise infuses the bulbs with a value, a meaning that's true even now. And even now then, so can our days be marked by the hope that our earthly sojourn is preparation for an earthly sojourn a resurrection sojourn, one that is still human, still physical, still earthy. This time and this journey is preparatory, but perhaps by contemplating our end, we can see that even these days, as Frost penned, are beautiful as days can be. Amen. <laughs>